So the month of April has come to an end. Amen. You know that. <laughs> a couple of hours ago only. And we're into the month of May. And so we said that our series that we had done around Easter, around what Jesus had done for us, uh, will be for the month of April. And so hence, we're starting a new series this morning. And, and we want to talk about coming out of what we had stirred one another with last week, particularly regarding this legacy that we want to leave and the way that we want to live is, is a life that we want to let others learn from. We want to talk about a life worth living for the next couple of weeks. And it's probably going to be seven weeks that we're going to talk about a life worth living. And, and, and this morning, I'm going to share with you the first um, preach into that series called Our Process of Preparation. We're going to talk about our process of preparation. So bear with me. And the, the scripture portion that we're going to be looking at is a letter that Paul wrote, incredibly deep personal letter that he wrote where he gave a lot of kind of um, response. He almost defended himself in this letter because he was really attacked. He was attacked on his character and the way he did things and, and, and he needed to respond. And this letter is from 2 Corinthians. And so actually it will be a great thing for you to read through the whole letter sometime. And take some time to say, well, let me spend a bit of time on 2 Corinthians those of you that have done it before, maybe just go through it again. It's a beautiful letter, and Paul is, is doing a lot in this letter to help us understand that the, one, the reason why he was doing certain things is around seeing the gospel grow in people's lives. And so this church, Corinth, um, had more troubles than any of the other churches that Paul founded or planted. They gave him a lot of hassle. And so you find throughout Second Corinthians where he's kind of like, guys, watch out for this and don't do this. And, and what, you know, they just went in through such stuff that, that it took a lot of effort to help them out of it. And, you know, the beautiful thing is that even though this church had so many issues and struggles, that we sit today with two letters, First and Second Corinthians, that were written because they had issues. And today we can benefit from other people's troubles, isn't it? And so maybe... Our own troubles can become something of a testimony that other people's faith in the future can be built on. So don't despise the stuff that you go through and say, ah, these are just so silly and, and I wish they never happened. But God may use your story to build an incredible testimony that when you share it, it can add incredible value to other people's faith. All right? So don't despise what you're going through and have gone through. But anyway, the church was not only struggling, they were struggling because of various reasons. They were deeply divided. They, they had these factions. They're like, oh, I'm of this guy, and I, I like them. And, 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 you know, when Clive preaches, then when, that's when we come to church. But when they say, oh, please don't, please tell us. By the way, that's when we never tell you who's going to preach in this church. So you don't build around people. Uh-huh. We don't want to do that because we don't think that there's one more anointed than the other and more and more special we have different experiences and whatever else but we build around king jesus and not around people anyway um they they not only had these divisions but they had immorality so extreme that that a man was living in sin with his mother or stepmother how's that for a church uh-huh. and and some of them been drunk at the lord's table when they had communion some of the guys were drunk like that's special 
Um, and so Paul had to struggle through these things and help them. Um, and, and it could have been so tempting probably for Paul to just write them up and say, I've had enough of these guys. Let me just move on. But he never did. He battled to get to them. And, and, and sometimes when he couldn't, like he would write to them as we find here, yeah, this beautiful letter. And he, and he had this hope that he would actually be able to get to them again. But his greatest desire was they would return to God and live a holy and honorable life before him. And so Second Corinthians is this letter. It's probably the most personal letter of Paul that he wrote um, he, because he writes about these personal issues he had been experiencing with the church. And so I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 11. Like we jump from chapter 1 right all the way to, to verse to chapter 11. And we're going to look at a few things there. And, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to jump around between verses in 2 Corinthians. So I'm going to read to you just from verses 1 to 2. Or maybe read to four, but we'll focus on just one and two. Paul writing the following. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. And Paul is just kind of like explaining and saying, please bear with me. There's something I need to share with you. And it may sound foolish to you, but you need to give me your attention. And he carries on, he says in verse two. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed to you one husband, you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Verse 3 says, But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you've put up with it readily enough. Paul's saying, guys, guys, just time out here a bit. I've got to talk to you sincerely and honestly. And it may sound like foolishness to you. But I have a real concern. And my concern is this. That the life that you ought to live, the way that you ought to conduct yourself, is not being done. And that there's a life worth living. And that there's a way in which we can be completely satisfied in Christ. And it seems like you're missing that. And I need to tell you where my heart is towards you about this. And it's an incredible way in which he comes and he, and he shares his heart with them. And you can just try to imagine with me the, the emotional turmoil that he's going through. He was part of this church. You can go read Acts 17, 18, where Paul was traveling and he found himself in the city of Corinth, right at the bottom of Greece. And he planted this church and it was an incredible thing that happened. He spent about 18 months in the city. And, and as he left from there and carried on with various other travels and places that he'd been to, he'd, he'd get feedback about what had been happening since his time in Corinth. And the feedback wasn't that good. And he had heard about these things that gee, a man would want to sleep with his mother or possibly even his stepmother. And he'd heard about just the vision and, and all sorts of other things. And, and he cries out to them. He says, guys, the life worth living that Jesus had bought for us 
provided for us. You're missing that. And so here he says the following. He says, I have a divine jealousy for you. So jealousy could be wrong, but jealousy could also be very good. Could be seen in a positive light. We know that our God is a jealous God. What does that mean? He says, I don't want to share you with no one. You belong to me. He says, my name is actually jealous. Praise God that he's jealous for us. Because it's by his spirit that you feel stirred to come to a time like this and, and share your lives with one another. Because the jealous God says, belong. Come together. Come and listen. Read together. Have time for your word that, that you can grow from. That's the jealous God that's by his spirit. He's luring you. Not because we're so great. He's luring us. He's pulling us. And Paul says, I have a divine. So he's actually saying, the same way in which God, and I'm not God, he's saying, he's saying, there's something in God that says he longs for you. He says, Corinthians, I long for you. I yearn for you. There's something in my heart that says what you're currently going through, what you currently experience is not, it's not what God has for you. He actually uses this word where we get the word zealous from. Zelo is the Greek word. It actually means to, to burn with zeal, to desire earnestly. See, there's something in my heart that burns for you. I'm zealous for you. The passion in my heart. And even though he's remote from them, he expresses his concern for them. And we find this throughout Paul's letters, a repetition of this, where he feels this way for the church. Not just in Corinth. The next verse is in, in Philippians 1 verse 8. Could we put that up there? Not just a reference. But Paul's writing this. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. This is how he feels about the church. The next one is in Colossians 1 verse 28, where Paul says similar thing. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says, This is my longing for you. I want you to live a life with living. I want you to be mature in Christ. He says the following in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7 to 8. Um, just, he says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Something up Paul's heart there. The last one is in, in verses 10 or 11 to 12. For he says, for you know how, he just talked about a, a mother. Now he says, like, you like, I, I want to be like a father. You know how like a father with his children, verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul is saying, guys, I have this longing for you. I'm zealous for you, not just to come to meetings. I want you to grow into maturity in Christ. I want to share my life with you so that the benefit of that could be that you will grow into God and that more of God will take shape in your lives. That's Paul's heart. And you find it here in 2 Corinthians 11 where he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Now this is what he's saying. Guys, I'm jealous for the following. And he uses the beautiful imagery of marriage. To help us understand. 
what he's really jealous for. This is what he's saying. This is a life worth living. This is what it's all about. And this is what he says in verses 2, further on. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul longs for them to be loyal to God. And the analogy is that of a bride remaining faithful to her husband before she even gets married. The words he uses, this imagery of a marriage is seen through the word betrothed, one husband. He says, I present you and a virgin to Christ. These are all imagery from marriage, by the way. Not often words that we would use these days in marriage because marriage has become so looked down on. And we just kind of get married because it's the right thing to do and it's great to have them wedding celebration but yeah when we do when we take a deeper look into what paul is really saying one of the things that we should actually see is is that the beautiful picture of marriage is redeemed something that that the world has actually played around with and messed around with not just during marriage but before well i can do whatever i want to before i get married and then when I get married, it's also, <laughs> if it doesn't work, if I don't like it, if I, whatever, whatever I want to do, if there's a small house option, I'll take it. But we've got to let the beautiful picture of, of marriage be restored, not just for marriages and potential marriages and future marriages, but for the way in which we are connected to our bridegroom, which is a strange thing for men to think that you're actually the bride. As men and women, part of the church, we are called the bride. So he's using this imagery to speak to the bride, the church in Corinth. But he's also speaking to us today. The church, yeah, King City Church. You're the bride. We're this local bride, but we're also part of the universal bride. We have the privilege of knowing many brides. <laughs> You've been to many churches. You know many churches in town. And, and over a couple of weeks, I'll be able to be privileged to visit a couple of brides in the Czech Republic. We're all part of the universal, but we also need to understand that as people, we are the bride. And Paul says, I long for you to remain a pure virgin to Christ. So let's talk about that a bit. And, and what he's saying to them, what you're being prepared for is the most important thing in your life. That's why this morning's talk is our process of preparation. This is the most important thing that you and I can be prepared for. There's nothing more important. And being fully aware of, of the cost, Paul knows, the cost that physical adultery had for marriage, Paul is concerned for the Corinthians that they would commit spiritual adultery as they consider, as they continue along this path of preparation. So let's just talk about the custom of marriage in Paul's day. There were three things that, that, that happened that will help us understand what Paul is saying here. Three distinct stages. And first is the, there's a process or, or the event called betrothal, where a formal marriage contract 
is drawn up. The woman at this time passes out of her father's authority from underneath that to that of another man. So she's betrothed. She's committed. She's made available for the husband or the bridegroom at that time. So a formal thing is, is established. The couple is legally married as husband and wife. But they're not, the marriage is not consummated, consummated yet. It's just the engagement process has started. But this engagement process is like marriage already. That's why the, an example from Matthew 1, verse 18 to 19, when, when Joseph heard that, that Mary was pregnant, he's like, huh? I'll be willing to quietly divorce her. They had not been together yet. The marriage was not consummated. In their culture, the marriage agreement was, was, was done. There was a betrothal that was taking place, had taken place already. He was committed to her, she was committed to him. But they hadn't come together yet. And so when he heard she was pregnant, he's like, ah, I'll divorce her to protect her. Because I hadn't slept with her. This is strange. And that's why obviously God through an angel had to speak to him and say, no, 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 Joseph, do that. Don't, don't do this. This is of God that this is happening. And so amazing thing that Joseph then did and said, I will be a father. So he was a stepfather, really, to Jesus. And so the thing, the second thing that happens is this, there's engagement period. So the betrothal has happened. Then there's an engagement period, which was a period between the betrothal and the wedding, which at times could even have been a year long. We know that in our cultures that happens too. People get engaged and, and later they, they actually marry. So already at this stage, the relationship between these two are deemed as very serious and the same as marriage. They're still waiting for the wedding day, but it's already, the commitment is there. When you say yes, and you, in our culture, if you get, if you get engaged, it's, it's a yes. It's not, oh, let me try it out. It's a yes. Amen? And then there's obviously the third, which is the wedding itself, which is obviously the consummation of everything. And the idea was then at this stage that the bride would be presented as a pure virgin to the bridegroom. So this is the analogy for us. The moment you say yes to Christ, you are betrothed to Him. You're engaged to Him. You're committed to Him. And that engagement period is where you and I are now. That one day, we will. And it talks about the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper. And Revelations 19, you can go and read that. It talks about this fact that, that one day you and I, the exact stage or eight or time that that will happen, we're not quite sure whether it's before the rapture and this and that. And, and end time, you know, um, understanding, there's a lot of debate about <clears throat> excuse me, when that will actually happen. But it will happen. Let me read to you. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm just going to get some water. Revelation 19. Could we go there? We got it. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's you and me, has made herself ready. Next one. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we're preparing ourselves. Next portion from Revelation 21. 
that we had up there as well. You can go for it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And some time ago, Clive spoke about this. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. So there's beautiful imagery that is used to help us understand. So when God uses this imagery, He is helping us to understand what He's doing. All right? He's saying, Listen, I want you to see yourself, the people of God, as the bride of Christ. The moment at conversion, we commit ourselves <clears throat> to Him. We are betrothed to Him. And we say, Lord, I, I have no one else that I want to consider to live for but you. Paul says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Because remember when we started talking, I'm not paraphrasing, <clears throat> Paul saying, remember when you gave your life to the Lord, when I helped you to see that Christ should be your Savior, when I helped you to be betrothed to Him. Remember that day? Now, subsequent to that, I'm concerned that you've lost the purity of focus and of lifestyle unto Him. That's why He says, I want to present you. I have this divine jealousy in me to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so, you and I are similarly promised for Him. We do not live for ourselves. The only life worth living is a life living for Christ. And in this process of saying yes to him, at what a time it came in your life. And maybe if there are not of some of you that this morning said, well, I have never said yes to Christ. We'd love to help you. But whenever you had said yes to Christ, you became betrothed to him. You became engaged to him. And one day we will enjoy the full marriage to him. But until then, we are challenged. We are encouraged. We are stirred to remain focused, to as the bride. That's one of the things that, that we've got to understand as we speak into the life of the church. Because this process is where you and I are in. The church is involved in this that Paul is talking about. And in a sense, we, you know, when a bride is brought into the venue, or the church building, and the people are there, then somebody would walk her down the aisle. In most of the cases, if the father is still alive, and, and, and that's possible to happen, the father would be the one who takes the bride towards the bridegroom. We're in a sense in that stage now, where we're walking down the aisle, prophetically. Where, in a sense, as your leaders, Paul is saying, this is what I'm doing with you, Corinthian church. I'm walking you down the aisle. And my desire is to present you to the bridegroom in a pure way, as a virgin, pure for him. And so he says, I desire with incredible zealousness in me that you will remain focused on your bridegroom. And this is the process of preparation that you and I are in at this stage. One of the beautiful ways in which we can remain 
prepared and ready for the bridegroom is to be involved in what Paul is talking. He says, he's speaking to the church. One of the most amazing ways in which we can remain pure and focused for our bridegroom is to be amongst people. And one of our responsibilities as elders are towards you is to help you towards that purity. And you are helping us because none are exempt. We find in scripture where it's often said in, in the book of Hebrews, it says, stir each other towards good works. And a paraphrase in this context would be possibly help one another towards purity. And so when we disconnect ourselves from the local church and from people and from leadership that can look out for our, on our behalf, the possibility of remaining pure is diminished. It's not becoming impossible, but it just helps that we are connected to one another and say, Yukai, you need to help me, my friend. I want to remain pure for my bridegroom. I want to remain pure for Jesus. I want to live for him. For all that I have, a life worth living, I want to live. But please help me. And don't ever consider yourself exempt from that and think I don't need it. Because that's the greatest lie. That's why we will be looking at these things in the, in the weeks to come. Where Paul is saying, guys, you've been deceived. There are some things that the enemy is trying to deceive you. He's saying there's a different Jesus. There's another gospel. There's another spirit that you can follow. Why? Because the enemy wants you to be tainted and actually destroy you, keeping you from actually being married. That's why, in a sense, physically speaking, when, when a father walks his daughter down the aisle, I can imagine some of the boys sitting there thinking, ah, should have been me up there, trying to get her attention. If there's anyone in that has any legal or whatever reason for this couple not to be married, ah, 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 she, she loved me first. Isn't it? Imagine that in a, at a wedding. Because there are those people there that will think, no, she should have not married this guy. She should have been with me or whatever the case may be. And I realized yesterday, I said it to Samin, you know, I have three sons. I'll never have the privilege of walking a, a daughter down the aisle. But in a sense, I do. Because we are the bride of Christ. I have this incredible privilege and a huge responsibility of walking you down the aisle. That's why our heart breaks. And I'm not trying to, you know, over boast or focus on, on leaders and on elders and, and try to put us above anybody else. But I don't know whether you know how often our hearts break for you. That in our prayer times for you, we think of your purity. That when we hear what you're going through, it breaks our hearts, not because we're anybody special, but because God gives us the divine jealousy for one another, that in this process of preparation, we will remain focused on our bridegroom. We say, Father, they've been betrothed to your son, Jesus. When they make decisions that possibly could lead them astray, oh, it breaks our hearts, Lord God. And it doesn't break our heart when they don't come to a meeting, first of all, but it breaks our heart when we know and pick up and discern that there's a loss of focus. And we stand accountable before God with, with what we're supposed to do for you. Ultimately, it's your call. It's your decision. 
But we also have a responsibility to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so our imploration, our heart, the longing for you is, please see Jesus as the one that your heart should belong to and nothing and no one else. And Paul brings this up. And that last slide that I want to just show you is actually a summary of where we are. None of us know when we will pass on from this life, but we do know that when we do pass on, then Christ has been the king of our lives. We will one day enter into marriage with him. But until then, you and I are going to be walking down the aisle. And then someone that walks with us, primarily is Holy Spirit, because he's our friend. He's the one, he's longing. That's why Jesus said, it's better that I go so that Holy Spirit can come to help you, to, be, to prepare you for, for me, for this marriage. And my request to you this morning simply is, on behalf of the elders, but I guess mostly because this is God's heart, we long for you to be faithful to your husband. His name is Jesus Christ. We long for you to understand the process of preparation that you're in. It's the most beautiful thing that you can be part of. Just as a bride, you can imagine a bride being so excited about the wedding day coming and preparing herself for that and going through extreme things. I can just imagine, again, I haven't had the privilege of sitting with a lady doing that. I've been with my two sons already that have been married and just the excitement that there was for them. But I know that as a bride, there's a lot of things that they want to do and get ready and, and be so credibly committed towards incredibly committed that no 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 i'm not gonna my my diet i'm gonna only eat this way this no i'm not gonna go there i'm not gonna do this stuff i'm gonna just focus on that and there are plenty of examples that we can think about but could we understand that in a much greater way you and i are being prepared for him we are walking down the aisle and won't you consider where you are at the moment in your life, whether you are seriously considering him or just yourself, and say, I want to live in such a way that I'm preparing myself for him. We're preparing our, ourselves with, with Holy Spirit's help to be a pure virgin bride unto him. And the beautiful thing is that when we have made mistakes, we've sat with people that have been involved in physical adultery before, fornication rather, firstly, where, where young people perhaps and those that wanted to get married had been involved physically in a sexual way. And they recognized the sin of that and came to God and asked for repentance ask for forgiveness through repentance, that God had restored them actually to virginity again, like they were before. 
And so it's possible. So if you're sitting here this morning and, and you have a testimony of that regard, God can restore you if it is related to marriage. But even in general, if you've been involved in stuff that you realize she has actually affected my virginity before Christ, I ask him to forgive me. And he can restore you. And friend, those of you that are married and have been involved in that, won't you, if you've never repented of any involvement in adultery, you've got to repent before God because it has a physical effect on your marriage. But in the same way, the spiritual side. We've been involved in all sorts of stuff, sinful things that have contaminated our spirits before God. And I ask you to come before him and say, Lord, please forgive me. And please restore me to the spiritual virginity before you because I want to be your bride, pure, spotless, blameless as we read before. This is the life worth living for. There's nobody, there's nothing greater than this. And so we're in this process of preparation where we say, God, my greatest ambition is to be pure unto you. We're going to do communion. And I want to ask you, as Clive takes it from here, to let your heart be stirred to whatever is relevant this morning for you to, to present to the Lord, to ask for forgiveness. But let's celebrate what He has done for us.